May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do some of you enjoy a good mystery story? If so, fasten your seatbelts and hearken to what is probably the greatest mystery story in the history of the world, the mystery of Advent, the mystery season of the coming of Christ. Like all good mystery stories, this one begins uh, mysteriously. Luke, who is always a brilliant storyteller, starts with throwing out a few vague and apparently quite unconnected clues. Agatha Christie, if she had been writing in the first century AD, could hardly have done better using her technique of sprinkling her opening chapters with unfamiliar names, with unusual occupations in exotic locations. And none of them at first seemed to have any obvious connection. But relax, you won't need the sleuthing skills of Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple to get your heads around the compelling and eventually connecting narrative of the Advent mystery story, which of course has the huge advantage of Agatha Christie of being a true story, a true story rooted in history. And its historical roots are alluded to in the opening verses of our reading today. Names like Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Anas, and Caiaphas, these were real historical figures. They appear in the writings of Roman historians like Josephus and Tacitus. And indeed, we can accurately point the date when the Advent mystery story began, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which was 29 AD in our Gregorian calendar. But actually, even more mysteriously, the story actually begins 500 years earlier with an astonishing prophetic utterance, which was quoted in the middle of our reading. And it comes from the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now Isaiah's words, <clears throat> which appear in verses three and four of our reading, are surprisingly well known, particularly here in Britain, to an audience far, far wider than people who've ever read them in the Bible. Why? Because these verses form the opening of the libretto of Handel's Messiah. George Frederick Handel, who was probably England's greatest composer, wrote his legendary oratorio, The Messiah, in the summer of 1741, astonishingly only in three solid weeks, at 25 Brook Street, Mayfair, a house which has just been made into a museum. And I will just digress for a moment on Handel's Messiah, because as I've just said, so many people know these words which have been on our screen without realizing that they ever have anything to do with Isaiah or the Bible. Well, what was Isaiah's prophetic message here? It was that a voice crying out in the wilderness was going to be heard to prepare the way of the Lord. We'll come to that voice in a moment. He's the central character in today's installment of our mystery story. But what is his voice going to say? And here we enter the mystic Meg or mystic Isaiah announcements because in Handel's version, 
the voice predicts that every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places plain, and all flesh shall see it together. Sounds very cryptic. It can't mean anything, meant anything to the people of Jerusalem 500 years before the birth of Christ. Now, when I first heard these words, I hadn't a clue who Isaiah was. I didn't have a clue who John the Baptist was. I didn't have a clue what Advent was. But nevertheless, I was tingling with excitement. I still do tingle with excitement when I hear these words. And the reason I was first tingling with excitement was because I was singing the words as a 10-year-old choir boy in a memorable performance of Handel's Messiah in Norwich Cathedral in December 1952. It was all part of the preparations for our late Queen's coronation six months later. And I can remember that performance of Handel's Messiah as if it was yesterday. The legendary Sir Malcolm Sargent was conducting. We were a chorus of 250 voices drawn from church choirs all over Suffolk and Norfolk where I grew up. And we had a legendary lineup of soloists headed by Kathleen Ferrier, who's recording that night of I Know That My Redeemer Liveth is to this day still a classic. Anyway, as I say, I was celebrating with excitement as we got underway that evening in Norwich Cathedral. And the opening tenor soloist, Richard Lewis, made the welkin of the cathedral ring as he hit the high notes of the recitative about a voice crying in the wilderness. And then we swung off into the magnificent opening choruses of and the glory of the glory of the Lord, all flesh shall see it together. And for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, before I get too carried away with my reminiscences of being a 10-year-old choir boy singing the Messiah, let me lighten the mood by telling you Sir Malcolm Sargent's rather good joke during the rehearsals. We were all rehearsing, Unto Us a Child is Born, which is started off by the altos, who in our Norwich Cathedral choir consisted mainly of matronly middle-aged ladies and even older ladies. And Sir Malcolm seemed somewhat underwhelmed by the rehearsal. So he tapped on his rostrum with his conductor's baton, said in his chipped, posh voice, Lady Contraltos, could we do the opening of Unto Us a Child is Born again, please? And this time, with a little more reverence and a little less astonishment. Well, even a ten-year-old could get that joke. But we should, at Advent, go into the territory of astonishment. And to do this, let's get back to John the Baptist, because he is the hero of our mystery story. He's the hero of Advent, and indeed he was Jesus' hero, because Jesus in a later passage in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 11, 11, declared, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Well, if John the Baptist was rated by Jesus so high, perhaps we should pay our highest attention to John and to his message today, the first Sunday in Advent. Who was John the Baptist? Well, he was born in the poor, hard-scrabble hill country of Judea in the same year as Jesus, i.e. about 29 or 30 AD. John's parents were a poor, elderly, God-fearing couple who are described in some detail in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. 
And they are both very important characters in the mystery story that Luke is telling us. John's father, Zechariah, was a priest. And one day he was on duty in the sanctuary of the temple, burning an offering of incense on the altar, when an angel appeared for him. And the angel completely spooked poor old Zechariah, who was terrified. The angel tried to reassure him, do not be afraid, said the angel. Note those three godly words, because they are repeated again and again and again throughout the Gospels. And we need to listen to them in our 21st century lives, here and now, whenever our earthly pressures, anxieties, and fears are piling up, and we need God's calming guidance. Do not be afraid to Zechariah. Do not be afraid to some of us. Zechariah, unfortunately, remained afraid. And when the angel gave him the amazing news that God had answered his prayers and those of his wife Elizabeth, and they were a childless couple, and was about to give them a son. Instead of saying, thank you, God, hallelujah, Zechariah didn't believe a word that the angel was telling him. So in a skeptical, querulous response, Zechariah said to the angel, how can this happen? I'm an old man. My wife, too, is getting on in years. And the angel then got rather testy with Zechariah because of his disbelief. But before he disappeared, the angel told Zechariah that he must call the baby John, an unusual name at that stage, and that John would be great in the sight of the Lord. And immediately after that, the angel added these momentous words about John. He said, even before his birth, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, all the clues in this mystery story of Luke's first installment, far and away the most important clue is this, this baffling first mention of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it doesn't sound all that baffling to you, for after all, St. Peter's is a spirit-filled church. We talk a lot, we pray a lot about the Holy Spirit, and his power and his presence in our 21st century lives. But way back in the first century, the Holy Spirit was an almost unknown figure. He'd hardly ever appeared in the books of the Old Testament and in the 3,000 years of Israelite history they cover. And throughout that long period, the Holy Spirit was conspicuous by his absence, at least to ordinary people. Whenever the Holy Spirit did make his appearance in the Old Testament, he empowered only big figures like kings such as David, or prophets such as Elijah and Isaiah, or Belazil, the builder of the temple, the Sir Christopher Wren of King Solomon's reign. So it was a pretty exclusive club of grandees and great men who got filled by the Holy Spirit. But all of a sudden, here in the first advent, the Holy Spirit took wings and began to appear much, much more often and began to transform the lives of ordinary, humble people, starting with John the Baptist. And then in no time, as the next chapters of Luke's Gospel show, the Holy Spirit was hopping and bopping all around the hill country of Judea and the banks of the Jordan. He came and appeared to Elizabeth, the mother of John, and then he appeared to the village girl, Mary, giving her the outstanding news that she was going to become pregnant as the mother of Jesus. 
And then Holy Spirit came on other local characters, such as Anna and Simeon. So if we're trying to unlock this mystery story of Advent, my big tip is this. Watch out for what the Holy Spirit is doing during the narrative. Because in the first Advent, he was transforming the lives of ordinary people, just as he transformed them today. John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth, and Zechariah, he was the first ever spirit-filled preacher. And in extraordinary numbers, the people of Israel flocked to hear his message, which he proclaimed largely in the desert wilderness around the banks of the Jordan. What was John's message? Well, first and foremost, it was a message of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, he says in verse 8 of our reading. And Matthew's gospel puts it even more strongly as he quotes John urging to the crowds, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does this stuff about repentance and repenting means? I think, I don't know about you, but the word repentance is a somewhat obscure and difficult word in the English language. It sort of vaguely conjures up Images of saying sorry over and over again, or writing out a hundred lines, or standing in the corner wearing the dunce's cap, or in ancient times going off to dress up in sackcloth and ashes. These concepts of repentance can still be valid, particularly the one about saying sorry. But in today's modern world, all these perceptions of repentance don't quite work. I think. And to get the full richness of the repentance that John the Baptist was making at the center of his preaching, you need to go to the language in which the Gospels were originally written, Greek, ancient Greek. And in the original Greek language, it all becomes, rather oddly, much more clear. Because in the Greek, the word for repentance is metanoia, which literally translates as meta, a change, noia, a mind and perhaps more colloquially and more richly translated as a change of heart and mind. Well, it starts to make sense. John the Baptist saying, change your hearts and minds. And he goes on to make it clear in his ferocious sermons, without such a change, you really can't get anywhere in a journey towards God or towards the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, you can't even start the journey if you don't repent, if you don't change your hearts and minds, if you don't start to say sorry to God. And then John, who was a real fire and brimstone preacher, hit home his message of repentance in language so fierce that if any Church of England clergyman nowadays was to start preaching in that tone, he'd probably be subject to a clergy discipline measure. Because what John was really uh, saying was in rough language, you brood of vipers, he began. Don't think I got off a very good start if I'd addressed you in that way this morning. You brood of vipers, began John. And they went on, those who don't repent, those who don't show the fruits of their repentance, those who don't, won't change their hearts and minds, they'll be cut down, they'll be thrown into the fire. Pretty tough stuff. But we ignore it at our peril. Because being a people's preacher, John then went on to spell out one or two practical rules of repentance. When the, when the crowd's obviously shaken up 
after they'd been called a brood of vipers, they said, what should we do? What should we do? And John's first answer was, people should share with one another. He was proclaiming a social gospel message, a message still true today. God may not ever absolve anyone who is content to have too much, while those around them have too little. And secondly, John made it clear that people seeking God should not go off wearing sackcloth and ashes and things like that. They should work at their own salvation by doing their jobs and living their lives as those jobs should be done, as those lives should be lived. Let the tax collector be a good tax collector, says John. Let the soldier be a good and honorable soldier, content with his wages. And what John is really saying here is that people who follow God have a duty to serve God where God has sent them. And it was John's message that there is nowhere we can serve God better than in our daily work and in our daily lives. It's a great message for all of us still today. A more modern John, the singer Johnny Cash, rather memorably put it after singing one of his greatest hits, I Walk the Line, in a church full of Southern Baptists in Memphis, Tennessee, said to them all, don't be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly use. Good advice. Now besides learning from John's message, we can learn a lot from his character and his example. And one enormously important characteristic of John is that he was not a negativist. When the crowds who came out to hear him preach around the banks of the River Jordan were so stunned that they wanted to know if he was the Messiah, if he was the promised saviour who was coming, he replied, no, one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Watch the Holy Spirit appear again. And with fire. And in St. John's Gospel, a passage on John is, quotes John the Baptist as telling the crowds about the one who's coming. He must become greater. I must become less. It's another good message for us contemporary Christians. We must all reduce our own petty little egos if we want to move into a closer relationship with God during Advent or at any other time. Now I hope by now you can begin to feel the strange stirrings and the power of the opening scenes in the mystery story of Advent. Somehow God is signaling, whether through Isaiah, whether through John the Baptist, that something is going to happen, something extraordinary, something enormously important. But we're not told what it is, these strange signals are taking place in the hill country of Judea. And there are movements of angels and of the Holy Spirit. We've already had one miraculous pregnancy of the elder Elizabeth who gives birth to John the Baptist. And he goes out to be John, the astonishingly compelling preacher and messenger of the Lord, who tells the people of Israel again and again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does that mean then? What does it mean to us now? Advent for Christians is a season of spiritual hope 
of optimism, of waiting, and of ultimate fulfillment. It is in conflict with the secular world around us and its current mood of commercial and political pessimism. As a secular nation right now, we seem to be very fearful of the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, the coming paralysis of train strikes, tube strikes, and perhaps even strikes by nurses. Perhaps we might even agree with the famous words of the poet William Butler Yeats. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Ever feel like that when you're watching the nightly news bulletins or yet another bit of political or economic chaos? But thankfully, the invisible world, the spiritual world, sees Advent quite differently. Today, we've only just begun to raise the curtain on the mystery story that's going to unfold. But it has the potential to give us hope, to satisfy our spiritual hunger and our quest for peace as we journey towards the coming of God. Coming next, as they say on trailers for TV series, are thrilling episodes starring the angel Gabriel, the Virgin Mary, the Annunciation, the Incarnation, and the beginning of the transformation of the world. So, if you're interested in this mystery story, fasten your seatbelts and come back next Sunday. Amen. Thank you.